1: Thank
2: <laughs> you. This is Bloomberg
1: Wall Street Week. We turn our attention
2: to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Easy does it, whether it's Fed rate hikes or China letting up on COVID restrictions or steering clear of a rail strike. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on the jobs numbers and Chair Powell's take on inflation. Mike Arrogetti of Ares Management on the remarkable growth in private credit. Private credit has tended to outperform when rates are going up. And Tom Montag and Ann Finucane on their new TPG venture into the world of carbon credits.
3: We saw an opportunity to improve the whole market.
2: It was a week of searching for the happy medium as China began the week in an uproar over COVID restrictions, put in perspective by former U.S. Ambassador to China, Gary Locke.
0: This is uh, clearly uh, uh, the worst since Tiananmen Square.
2: But things ended the week a bit more calm for China after authorities signaled some easing in the COVID policy as urged by World Bank President David Malpass. I think they could use a recalibration, more targeting of their of their lockdowns. We started the week with a looming rail strike, but President Biden and Congress sought to calm things down by stepping in and imposing a deal on the parties.
3: The US House is passing the bill to avert the strike by those freight rail workers.
2: And consumers seem to be seeking their own happy medium as they started
4: their holiday shopping. It was uh, kind of uh, muted uh, Black Friday. You know, it was um, uh, solid uh, customer traffic uh, overall, but not
2: strong. All of which brought us to Fed Chair Powell, who struck a balance, or at least tried to, between raising rates too much and not raising them enough.
5: We need to raise interest rates to a level that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2%. There's considerable uncertainty about what rate will be sufficient. But
2: then the U.S. job numbers came in on Friday, and there was nothing moderate about those. 263,000 jobs created in November, and employers are paying more for every one of them, with average hourly wages up a whopping 0.3%, 0.6% month over month, and that's 5.1% up year over year. The markets took a look at all this and didn't like it one bit, That's at least at first. But by the end of the day, on Friday, had settled back down, and overall the S&P 500 gained over 1% percent for the week, and the Nasdaq was up over two percent, while the yield on the 10-year fell to under 3.5 percent for the week after starting out at nearly 3.7. Here to help us sort through this all, we welcome now Greg Peters back to Wall Street Week, co-CIO for fixed income at PGM, and Christina Hooper, welcome back from Invesco. She's chief market strategist there. So, Christina, let me start with you. I I think uh, Jay Powell was trying to calm things down, uh, but I'm not sure he accomplished that.
6: He did not accomplish that, but that's the market's fault, not his fault. I think he was very clear uh, in telling us what we already knew, uh, which is that the Fed is likely to downshift to 50 basis points in December, but the terminal rate is very unclear, and we have a ways to go in terms of taming inflation. Really, the only positive was around housing and talking about uh, the rolling over there. Uh, but other than that, I think he was a, a straight shooter uh, about setting the table for what uncertainty there is in terms of, of where the terminal rate is and where the Fed pauses.
2: But Greg, he also set the table for being really concerned about wage inflation because he talked about the really dislocation, particularly on the jolts numbers. And then those numbers came in on Friday and were exactly what he was hoping would not happen, I think.
7: Yeah, so the strong non form payroll report and the recent economic data actually is a blunt reminder, actually, that the data are in charge. So it doesn't matter if you're a pundit, or portfolio manager, or even Fed Chair Powell, uh, it's all driven by the data. So for him or anyone to proclaim that you know, rate rises are pausing or pivoting is just really kind of a fool's errand because you're driven by the data, and the data is what's driving the Fed. Uh, and should drive the markets.
6: Absolutely. If, if you don't mind my adding, back in June, the Fed communicated that it was going to only hike by 50 basis points. Then two data points came out within days of the Fed meeting. We got um, CPI, we got uh, Michigan inflation expectations, and they pivoted to 75 basis points. So Greg is absolutely right. The data is going to drive this, and that really renders Powell's speech pretty irrelevant.
2: So, so Greg, if the data are driving the Federal Reserve, what's driving investors? If you're an investor, well, what do you make of these data and where do you go?
7: Well, you know, it is this circular reference problem that we have. Uh, It's 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 clear to me at least that the markets are focusing less on the data and more on what the Fed has to say. The challenge, I think, is that the rhetoric coming out of the Fed uh, is quite disparate and all over the place. So the message being what is quite mixed. But to me, it's really hard for me to swallow that you know rates have rallied risk assets have uh, also rallied um, and we haven't even seen a recession yet and we haven't seen the peak in rates and we've had one data print David uh, of, of lower infl- uh, and lower inflation
2: So you're a fixed income guy <laughs> Greg uh, what do you do in fixed income given that circumstance?
7: Yeah so I think it's been this 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 obviously very difficult market for fixed income if you think about where the 10 year started this endeavor post covid it was 50 basis points right so I know we're at three and a half now I do think yields move higher here as we reprice more rate hikes but I have to tell you. Uh, you know, we, we've repriced to such a dramatic degree that I see a tremendous amount of value in fixed income. Yields higher, all else equal is a good thing. Spreads wider, all else equal a good thing. So while we can't time it, I feel really bullish on the outlook for fixed income.
2: Thank you so much Investco's Christina Hooper and PGM's Greg Peters. Coming up, Bank of America veterans Tom Montague and Ann Finucane join Wall Street Week for an exclusive explanation of their brand new carbon credit venture backed by TV. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this.
8: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
2: This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Global Wall Street got some big news this week as two of its most prominent citizens, Tom Montag, the former COO of Bank of America, and Ann Finucane, the former vice chair of Bank of America, got together and announced a big new venture backed in part by TPG and it involves carbon credits. We're delighted to say to welcome them now to Wall Street Week for an exclusive discussion about this new venture. So thank you very much, Ann and Tom, for being here. Ann, let me start with you. You're the chair of this new venture. Explain where it came from. How long have you have been working on this?
3: Thanks, David, and good to be here. So uh, this is an evolution, actually, of work that Tom and I did at Bank of America uh, for our own company but also for our clients, where as more and more companies are looking to become carbon neutral, which is the first step in becoming net zero, they do an audit, they review what they can do, and there's a delta between everything they could do and uh, what is carbon neutrality. And the, the sort of basic pa- practice has been to fill in that delta for the short term with carbon credits. But they are not plentiful. They have had some controversy around them, because looking back, uh, they've uh, not been well vetted, and they may not be uh, as, as um as good as they could be, so we saw an opportunity to improve the whole market. One, to fill what clients need to put money into the developing world. Uh, in other words, cash into protecting forests uh, for uh, uh, removal as well. So this is carbon reduction, carbon renewal, carbon removal, and. Uh, In order to do that, we needed to set up a system that would be uh, much more, I think, acceptable to not only companies, but to the NGO world. So what I'm talking about is that these credits would be uh, vetted uh, through proprietary uh, quality guardrails. They would have third-party ratings, it would be a methodology that's transparent, and so people could feel comfortable with this new product.
2: So, so, Tom, you're going to be the CEO of this. You've spent a career really in and around the markets, whether at Goldman Sachs or at Bank of America. Are you making a market in these carbon credits? Is that the way it's going? To be? You're putting together people who put them together with the people who need them.
8: We're making a market in the sense, David, that we're actually, you know we're offering a product that they can buy. Uh, it's not yet a tradable product. Uh, at some point, it may be. But at this point, you know, we, as Adam said, we're, we just we have we've, we've established Rubicon Carbon. Kind of solutions company, and the first product we have is what we call Rubicon Carbon Tons, and that is what we are offering to enterprises around the country.
2: Well, tell us what's in that Rubicon Carbon Ton when it's available. What is in there?
8: So what what we've done is that you know our our three words, if you go to our website, RubiconCarbon.com, are scale, confidence, and innovation. And so we basically have already purchased a number of. Uh, carbon credits, and we sell them to you in in a basically a portfolio. And the portf- there's two different portfolios. There'll be a third, uh, and there'll probably be more over time. We have a nature-based portfolio and an emissions-based portfolio, and we will have a removals. No, each one of those underlying those Rubicon carbon tons in nature has numerous projects that we've already purchased, and we curate. It's constantly. So we, we've we hired uh, Dr. Jen Jenkins as our Chief Sustainability Officer. And not only do we look at them when they come in, but we're always looking at and curating what's in there. So you would buy the right to retire carbon credits in the portfolio of your choice uh, at any
2: time that you wish. Uh, so, Anne, uh, do you essentially certify that in fact these credits exist and that they're legitimate? You and I have talked in the past about things like greenwashing. Does this address that problem right. to some extent? And do you need the government to certify it?
3: Well, let's just go back here for a minute. I think the problem with carbon credits is more um, retrospective than it is current. Retrospectively, uh, it was a nascent industry early on, small players, and um, standards were not set. So, yeah, in some uh, places they were questionable. But today, we have much more transparency. We're working with NGOs. We uh, not only will work with those that certify and verify today, we're essentially taking another step. And we are doing our own project-level diligence. So this is sort of an insurance on top of an insurance. And actually, to, beyond that, we're going to be doing some work in terms of insurance itself and risk management. So if you were a client and you came to us, I think that you would have much more confidence. First of all, the projects themselves are forward-looking, not retrospective. We recognize what the issues were in in the years gone by. We're not buying uh, renewable projects in OECD countries, meaning we're not trying to uh, make renewables in America, which are actually cheaper and easy to get to, part of the credit basket. What we are doing is looking to uh, the developing world to help. And I think everybody needs removables. So we'll be transparent. We'll be easy to use. The credits are uh, verified, certified, and we're taking a second look at them through uh, Jen Jenkins group. I think that this is a sort of end-to-end process. We are, we are working with developers, we're working with brokers, and we may actually source credits ourselves in the years to come.
2: And let me come back to you and talk about the future of this business, as it, as it were. How big is the bread box?
3: Well, let's just talk about how big is the need. Uh, by any dimension, we are looking at a need, a delta, of 3 to $4 trillion a year needed to create a net-zero world by 2050. And uh, the scientists, the NGOs, governments would like to see us get halfway there by 2030, so or at least 45 percent. There just simply isn't enough money to do that uh, in the current equation. Governments can't do it. Philanthropy can't do it. And businesses are really not set up to do it. You will see more of that in the years to come. But we're talking about $4 trillion a year that is needed to fill this delta. Meanwhile, through uh, some commitments that have been made, you know, about 90 percent of the world is committed to some form of net zero. But the um, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, otherwise known as GFANS, is a collection of 500 financial firms who have committed to be net zero. For financial firms to be net zero, all of their clients have to be net zero. That means not just big corporates, but middle market companies, small businesses, and ultimately consumers. So imagine that kind of um, task ahead of us to help clients and customers become first carbon uh, neutral, ultimately net zero.
2: Well, speaking for myself, I find it very exciting and we'll be really curious to see how it develops. Thank you so much for sharing with us. That's Tom Montag and Ann Finucane of Rubicon Carbon. Coming up, we're gonna explore the large and growing world of private credit with Mike Ergetti of Aries Management. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
8: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Credit. It's what makes the business world go round. And years of fiscal and monetary stimulus have made sure there's plenty of credit to go around. But now the Fed and other central banks would like there to be just a little less lending so we can get inflation down.
5: History cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy.
0: We will stay the course until the job is done.
2: Which is hitting deals, particularly when it comes to private equity.
0: What affects deal making is uncertainty. Uncertainty is the enemy of deal making.
2: But it turns out that as the government regulates lending
5: from the banks more, the world of private credit has exploded. The more you regulate, Parts of the financial system, the money tends to flow to the unregulated parts of the financial system. Having all that credit going on outside of the regulated uh, part of the economy is not ideal.
2: But that leaves the question whether private credit will be able to step in as the banks pull back.
0: Private credit is really important, but uh, private credit has also pulled back a little bit. Not because of uh, the availability of, of financing or because they are stuck with uh, bad loans like some of the large banks are, but because of the enormous uncertainty.
2: And to take us into this large and growing world of private credit, we welcome now one of the leaders in the area. He is Mike Arigetti CEO of Aries Management. So Mike, thank you so much. Welcome to Wall Street Week. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks. We hear so much about private credit these days and how big it is, how big it's gotten. Give us your sense of just how big it is right
5: now and why it's gotten this big. So, when we talk about private credit, let me just zoom out quickly. We're talking about lending that is happening outside of the banking system, and that could be in corporate, real estate, infrastructure, consumer. Uh, I think a lot of the recent dialogue that, that folks are paying attention to is more along the opportunity in corporate lending. That's the most evolved and the most developed market, both here in the U.S. and globally. In terms of sizing, no one quite knows just because a lot of this is in private hands, but order of magnitude, the private credit market for corporates in the US is about one trillion. Juxtapose that with CNI loans in the banking system that's about two to two and a half times that uh, and almost at parity in terms of size with the leveraged loan and high yield market. So what effect is the increased
2: interest rates had on the private credit business? Obviously, it's affecting a lot of business right now. It's harder to get loans. If you can get them at all, they're more expensive. Yeah, I think private credit has tended
5: to outperform when rates are going up for two main reasons. Number one, the structure of the loans are short duration and floating rate, so they typically reprice every 30 to 90 days. So as rates are going up, the return is going up. Um, that, obviously, in an environment where we're seeing a lot of volatility in the equity markets and valuations are challenged in the high-grade markets, private credit is a place where people can actually go to benefit from from rising rates. The the flip side of that, obviously, is that as rates are going up, debt service becomes more challenging for leveraged borrowers. And so part of the conversation today is, as you're generating this excess return, at what point does the incremental uh, interest rate challenge the companies? I would say as we sit here today, uh, still really strong fundamental economic performance within the portfolios and not any signs of stress really making their way through as a result of the rate hike. Mike, just pick up on a couple of things you said there because I talked
2: to one investor who said yeah, you know, there's no such thing as truly bulletproof in business, but these are close to it. And I guess it's because of the two things you mentioned, the short duration and also the fact that you've got
5: floating rates. So if interest rates go up, you're protected. Well, I hope That person you spoke to is an Aries investor already, but if they're not, I hope they're (laughs) watching this show. Uh, Bulletproof is always something that you don't want to talk about in investing. But I would agree, at this point in the cycle, private credit is is a good place to be. Floating rate, as we said, short duration, but also senior secured. So if you think about where these exposures sit in a company's balance sheet or relative to the value of an asset. Uh, Today, most private credit loans are sitting in the top half of the capital structure, which means that there's institutional equity supporting those loans um, dollar for dollar. But there's a significant amount of equity valuation that would have to deteriorate before you begin to have a conversation about principal loss on on private credit. Mike, you mentioned uh, Aries Investors, and I wonder whether you're having, if
2: anything, an easier time in getting investors these days. Because interest rates going up necessarily affect the value of equities, just because of the discount rate, it makes it less attractive. Has
5: Private credit has become more attractive relative to equities as an alternative investment. I think so. You know, in, in Ares manages close to $350 billion of assets globally, and we have funds that we offer across the alternative spectrum, including private equity. Uh, I would say as a general observation, investor appetite for play equity product is pretty muted right now, simply because, as you point out, valuations are challenged. And if you think about the drivers of return in that market. Earnings growth is going to be muted. Availability of leverage is is difficult. Cost of capital is high. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on Wall Street Week. That is Mike Arrighetti. He's CEO
2: of Ares Management. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall
0: Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there.
2: This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're joined now once again by our very special contributor to Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, I have to say, until Friday, I thought the big story was going to be what Jay Powell had to say. And then those jobs numbers came in. And obviously, the number of jobs was really impressive. But also, the average hourly wage. Wow.
4: Look, what we saw was a 7.5% annual rate wage increase for the month, a 6% wage increase for the last three months, and a 5% increase for the year. So it's high and it's rising. And the labor market is strong and we're still in unprecedented territory in terms of the gap between vacancies and jobs. And I think that, what that's gotta tell you is that we got a long way to go to get an inflation down where the Fed has said that it wants it uh, to be. But we don't know where this is, how this is all going to play out But for my money, the best single measure of core underlying inflation is to look at wages. Uh, It's interesting. That's what Paul Krugman uh, acknowledged uh, today when he said that he was shaken in his views by uh, these numbers. And I think what this is telling us is that the Fed's got a long way uh, to go. So how is that going to happen? I mean, we heard Jay Powell talk about the Jolts numbers, for example.
2: say we've got a big gap between the people trying to get people to work and the people actually working. As long as you have that, you've got this pressure. He said, we've got to get demand down so that, in fact, we are not seeking as many people in the workforce, but how does that get done? It's not getting done yet.
4: It's not getting done yet, and what that says is we're probably going to need increases in interest rates, I suspect they're going to need more increases in interest rates than the market is now judging or than they're now saying. Look, every every time they revise their forecast of inflation up and they regard revise their forecast of ultimate unemployment up as well. And, gosh, we've all been at the airport, and they say it's leaving at 7.30, and then they say it's leaving at 8.30, and then they say it's leaving at 9.30. And when I see that happen, I think it's leaving at 11. And it's something like that with uh, these economic uh, forecasts. So I hope I'm wrong, but my sense is that inflation is going to be a little more sustained than what people are looking for. And my sense uh, also is that it's much harder than many people think to achieve a soft landing, because there are all these mechanisms that kick in. At a certain point, uh, consumers run out of their savings, and then you have a Wile Coyote uh, kind of moment where consumption falls off. At a certain point, people start putting their houses on the market, and then you see house, house prices falling, and then other people rush to put them on the market. At a certain point, you see credit drying up, and when credit dries up, people can't pay back uh, their old... Bar- their old uh, borrowing. So there is this proposition. We've talked about it before on the show, David. It's called Psalm's Rule. It says that when the unemployment rate goes up by half a percent, it goes up by more than two percent. And that's because once you get into a negative situation, there's an avalanche aspect. And I think we have a real risk that that's going to happen at uh, some point.
2: So to continue your airport analogy, when is the plane going to leave? Because we heard Jay Powell this week say, don't pay as much attention to how fast we're going up, because everybody jumped in the fact, he was pretty clearly signaling 50 basis points, 75. He said, pay attention to the terminal rate. I'm not sure the markets did that. So where do you think the terminal rate is now?
4: Look, I've been saying that relative to the five that's priced into the market, a little below five, I think that's got to be low. Uh, are likely to be low because I always try to look for possible errors and four seems almost impossible and six is certainly a scenario we can write. And that tells me that five is not a good best uh, guess uh, for where it's going to be. In terms of what will happen, I guess I think there's an old saying that things happen faster than you think they will. Uh, so, don't happen as fast as you think they will, and then they happen faster than you thought they could. <laughs> and I think that may be the way it is with uh, the downturn. I don't know when it's going to come, but when it kicks in, I suspect it'll be fairly forceful. I got an email, as you know, Larry, this week from a loyal viewer of Wall Street, and particularly a
2: loyal viewer of yours, saying, I really love hearing from Larry Summers. And he asked the question, he said, what's so magic about the 2%? I mean, why can't we live with three percent or four percent for that
4: matter? First of all, I think it's important to understand that having failed for a while to hit two percent, it's kind of problematic then to declare that it's no longer our goal, even if it was a somewhat arbitrary goal in the first place. Second, we've already backed away from the two percent in a sense. We've been for years well above two percent. And nobody's saying we should swing below 2% so it all averages out to be 2. So in some sense, we're already not really trying for a 2% average inflation target. We're trying for a 2% minimum inflation uh, target, and that's different than what we originally set out to. So we've already eased. Third. If we settle in for a 3% inflation target, then where do we think it's going to go? Presumably there's going to be a low point of inflation in this cycle, David. And from that low point, it will rise. So saying 3% as a target for what we're disinflating to isn't saying 3% as an average for uh, the next uh, cycle. So what I think we should do is stay with the 2% uh, target, recognize, as I think is surely right, uh, that uh, that's going to be a low point, not uh, an average. But I think that's all right.
2: There was news that went beyond the US economy this week and it had to do with China. Uh, We had demonstrations at the beginning of the week. They seem to be settling down a little bit because they're easing off on the COVID restrictions. But it's pretty clear that the Chinese economy is struggling some in part because of those restrictions. Give us a sense of what the risks are there for the global economy because of what's going on in China right now.
4: Look, it's possible that we're going to gain a little strength because it's quite possible that they are going to open up a bit in response to these uh, protests. And then the Chinese economy is going to go faster. And when it goes faster, that will be an impetus to commodity prices that will help parts of the global economy. I think the challenge for them is that they've only got one-fifth as many intensive care units per person and a third as many nurses as we do per person and they don't have much immunity. And so it could spread like wildfire and they could have a very scary situation. And that's their tension, really. They can save the economy or they can save their populations uh, near perfect health. But I don't think they're going to be able to do both. Well, And to your point, Larry, it seems to me that we can sit here and say you
2: should ease up some of your COVID restrictions. They have to be data dependent in their own way. It depends on how many infections they get, how many intensive care units are being used. They may have to adjust
4: their approach. They're surely going to have to adjust. They're surely going to have to titrate uh, their approach uh, over time. And I don't think it's going to be easy. I do think sooner or later they're going to have to do this and they're not gaining a lot by postponing it. So I think a managed exit from zero COVID is probably the right thing for them to do. And I think the protesters have probably pushed them in that direction. And that's probably a good thing for them and for the global economy. But it's going to be a very rough patch.
2: Larry, it's so great to have you here and have you here in New York. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. That is our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. The power of no. All of us like to hear people agree with us, so we're none too happy when people go the other way, when they tell us that we are just plain wrong, like former Vice President Mike Pence recently did to Senator Elizabeth Warren on the subject of abortion counseling. Senator Warren, you couldn't be more wrong. But sometimes being told no is exactly what we need, whether we want it or not. Take, for example, President Putin and his ill-fated decision to invade Ukraine,
3: something that hasn't gone particularly well for him. A bunch of countries are, are watching him make mistake after mistake and not wanting to associate themselves with, as Donald Trump would say, a loser. And people, at least those outside of Russia,
2: suspect Putin's problems are the result of his being surrounded by yes-men. I don't think there's any question that Russian intelligence got this wrong or considered the plight of President Xi of China as he enters his historic third term as president. A month ago, he emerged triumphant at the end of his 20th Party Congress with his hand-picked team, as described by Mary Lovely of the Peterson Institute.
3: We now have what we might think of as all the king's men.
2: But this week, President Xi was confronted with demonstrations protesting his zero COVID policy.
3: This is a big deal these um, political protests because they're happening across the country at, at the same time in multiple locations.
2: You just have to wonder whether that hand-picked team is exactly what President Xi needs right now. And when it comes to the power of no, maybe that is exactly what former President Donald Trump could use down at Mar-a-Lago about now as he managed to hold a dinner party that included Ye, who has been accused of being anti-Semitic, and let him bring along with him a friend who everyone agrees is anti-Semitic.
4: Nick Fuentes, avowed Nazi sympathizer white nationalists, anti semite I mean, like, we could go through the list.
2: And at long last, it looks like Mr. Trump may be getting a taste of no from leaders in his own party. From Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. There is no room in the Republican Party for anti-Semitism or white supremacy to the likely next Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. I don't think anybody should be spending any time with Nick Fuentes. He has no place in this Republican Party. To Mr. Trump's former Vice President himself, Mike Pence.
4: I think the President demonstrated uh, profoundly poor judgment uh, in, in giving those individuals a seat at the table.
2: It may not be what we want to hear, but sometimes no is the best answer, that is, if we are listening. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
1: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
4: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Steeple Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.